Welcome to Demon Cast, his Dark Materials episode one. The one where we finally get to talk about the TV show. I'm Sarah. I'm Chris. And we are excited. We are all of the hype. The TV adaptation. It has taken place. Yeah, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you know that already. You may well be as hyped as we are. Welcome if you're listening for the first time. Probably some of you don't care about the books that much, so maybe you've just tuned in for the for the TV show. Yeah, and that's fine. We'll be covering the TV show week by week alongside our book podcast, which is actually only a few episodes away from finishing in terms of us recording it. Yeah, we will try not to be those people who are like, it's not like the book every two seconds. But also... A little bit. <laughs> yeah. But we'll try, to, we'll try to kind of balance that out a bit as best we can. I think so. I don't think it diverts from the book too much so far either. Mm-hmm. But I mean, this is the first time we've talked about the TV show. Who knows how it's going to go? We're both coming off the back of being ill with the flu so it could be quite a skew with episode do you think people listening outside the uk will know what skew with means i don't know please let us know yeah if you do not know what skew with means wonky i feel like that might even be very specific to this part of england as well, well i don't know let us know yeah there's your first topic to write in, in the mm. discussion group about <laughs> i'm sure you can't wait so Do you want to get on with it? (laughs) I mean, I say it every time. If you'd like to, I feel like you could. I'd love to. (laughs) Let's um, let's talk about season one. Episode episode one. Lyra's Jordan. Mm, Not Lyra's Oxford. No. I'm going to... I'm going to start, there's a sin right at the beginning, right? I know what you're going to say. And it's a pretty big sin. and And I was a little bit upset for like a minute, which is that it starts kind of... In the in a similar way that the film version does, if if any of you have seen that, in that instead of being shown stuff, we we are told. You you you're referring to the expositionary narrative text at the very beginning. I am indeed referring. It, it, it to that. explains that we're in sort of a, another world mm-hmm. where demons are human souls and the magisterium rules all, apart from the barren northern wastelands. Yeah. Etc. Um, yeah, I, I think that they went too far with what the text said because actually they don't do a bad job of showing most of those things mm. throughout the episode and I just feel like they didn't need to hold the viewer's hand that much. Yeah, Maybe showing that it's in a different world, saying that it's in a different world was okay. But there are ways you can show that. Well, I mean, I think it's quite obvious from just the things in the world that it's quite different. Yeah, I, th- I think the thing is, though, that the way the show looks overall, it could be for the most part, aside from real specific stuff Mm. like the demons, be just maybe 1930s, 1940s Britain. Mm. And maybe that's why they did it. But I think that like, and it's jumping ahead a little, and you probably want to talk more about the the narrative text, but (laughs) Asriel arriving in a helicopter doesn't do much to help the idea that it's a different world. But we can talk. We can talk about that momentarily. Yes, we can. Um, I think all I really want to say about that is, is that I think it kind of treats the audience a bit like idiots. It doesn't allow them to kind of learn things. It just outrightly tells them. But 
that said, we are people that know what has happened already because obviously we've read the books. Mm. So we're going in with a sort of knowledge already. So it'd be interesting to know if you are a non-book reader who's watching this for the first time, how maybe you felt about that narration, whether you kind of, that was helpful or not. I mean, I think it would be helpful, but I think more than it treating the viewer like they're stupid because it is it feels patronizing when you know what's going on already Mm. and that doesn't necessarily take into account the fact that some of the viewers will be kids you know the time slot it's airing Mm. in the uk in particular is sort of a time when older children and families get together to watch and honestly the way it's presented is very much in the vein of the classic Mm. examples of those british sunday night family tv shows like the chronicles of narnia type stuff and the 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 borrowers borrowers and you know so I I get why they've done it but I actually think that they just don't have much faith in themselves as TV makers because I do think they introduced quite a lot of the stuff they wrote about really well I think the only thing is the otherworldliness didn't always come across all that well Mm. but you know demons and all the rest of it I don't think they necessarily needed to explain yeah I've kind of realised that while I've been sort of slugging this off, I had this kind of ping moment in my head of like, that's actually the way that every Star Wars film opens. Oh yeah, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's uh, some lazy ass filmmaking is what that is. Yeah, I mean, I'll say I love Star Wars, but I'm well aware that those are some flawed films. Well, (laughs) forget people having a go about like us about what we say about... um, (laughs) His dogs, yeah, they're going to be writing in like, how dare you say the Star Wars films are flawed? Sorry, I do love them, but they are flawed. Yeah. Um, so expositionary text aside. We get what you just mentioned, which mm. was a helicopter. Yeah. I mean, I, I was initially thrown by that because I was like, are oh, there helicopters in the book? Actually, in the book, they mention gyrocopters, um, oh, which are not helicopters, but still. And I think that that's one place where they immediately missed an opportunity to show that this was some sort of other world because he could have arrived in an aircraft that didn't look like it belonged in our time and our world. But he arrived in what looked very much like a helicopter you might see just flying over the city today. Mm. Like, I don't want to get hung up on the little details too much, but at the same time, those little details kind of all together do matter. Yeah, I think it it throws a, a bit of a question up of, as well of... Like, why is everyone flying around in Zeppelins and kind of lighter than air travel if they've mastered heavier than air powered flight? I mean, I know in the book he does arrive in a gyrocopter, but I still feel like that's more justifiable why they'd be using Zeppelins because that sort of technology is much more akin to Zeppelin technology in a way Mm. in that you're not kind of generating downward thrust, you're generating forward thrust and it's not viable. How does a gyrocopter work just out of interest? Sorry, yeah, okay. Oh, a science watch bit that I didn't even anticipate. Um, A gyrocopter looks like a helicopter, but the propeller blades on top aren't powered. They're not connected to a motor usually. What happens is they are actually driven around by the movement of air over them as the gyrocopter moves forward. So the gyrocopter has a forward thrusting engine and you get it moving forwards fast enough, the blades on top start to spin and generate lift and pick it up off of the floor. So it flies in terms of the way it appears to move through the sky and what it requires to keep it up there. It's more like an aeroplane than a helicopter. Mm. But obviously with those moving rotor blades on top, it's just much smaller than an aeroplane. And I just think they they could have made kind of a really wacky looking flying machine for him to arrive in that was a bit helicoptery but wasn't. And you'd have been like, oh, that's weird. We must be in a fantasy world. Yeah. 
Um, and then that finally kills off the need for any of that expositionary narrative. And meanwhile, everyone at home is like, now I know far more about helicopters and other copters than I ever thought I would. Yeah, I mean, that just went real boring. So let's move on. Asriel <laughs> arrives in the flood with Lyra. Yes. And the cutest baby Pan. <laughs> You're all like, where's Pan? Because he's carrying her and her swaddling and where's Pan? And then he's revealed. Yeah, because we were talking the other day about like how they, we weren't sure about how they would show kind of like um, baby demons because it's not something you really get a lot of in the books, at least. Certainly um, not the first three. Yes, certainly not the first three. Um and I didn't know how they would do that. And then when Azriel hands over, he's like, here's Lyra and Pantalaimon. And then, oh. Yeah, and little baby Pan ple- peeks out of the yeah. blankie. And... Adorable. Yeah. Um, so we've got that little moment. And then. But where's Stelmaria in that scene? She's there with him. Is she? Yeah. Okay, I'm blind. Yeah, she does a little wade through the water. You can't see, but I was doing a very good leopard impression. She was doing a great impression of a leopard wading mm-hmm. through water. I'm yeah. sure it looked exactly like. Delmaria looked if I'd have seen her how yeah. did I not see her anyway <laughs> um, Asriel demands scholastic sanctuary that becomes quite a big thing in this episode like we're given to believe scholastic sanctuary really matters I think yeah um, not a thing in Northern Lights really that gets brought up because you don't even get this bit in it <laughs> yeah well they, they talk about how Asriel arrived with her but you don't see it as a scene in the book and then we get, a, after that little bit, we get a 12 years later. Yeah, Lyra in Lyra's Jordan. Yeah. I liked I liked quite an awful lot about the way they introduced Lyra and the whole kind of chase through the corridors mm. and you get to see bits of the college. And, oh boy, I really enjoyed the way the demons changed shape. Like there's yeah, a part where Lyra runs around a corner and pans a bird and he crashes to the floor and rolls. And as he rolls, he kind of pops out as a different animal and... Like, I think he goes bird to Pine Martin or something like yeah. that. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Pine Martin ermine action for, yeah. for Pan in this, which is kind of how um, Phil uh, wrote, wrote it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there are two forms in which he looks very cute. Adorable. Yeah. And also he's quite agile, so it makes sense for the bits where they're like sliding over the roofs yeah. later on. And very stuff. expressive as well, their little faces. Yeah, they've definitely paid attention to the rules of animation of like... If your animal characters have got eyebrows, you'll be able to give them feelings. <laughs> it's true. That's what you do. Mm. Like e- even watch Wally. Wally's got eyebrows because without eyebrows, mm. you can't animate emotions properly. Oh, yeah. that's nifty. So there's always something that moves that looks a bit like an eyebrow that gives you that expression. Yeah. Now, given that, sorry, I'm just I'm kind of going back on myself a little bit, but. Given that it doesn't start in the same place, so we've we've had the the Lyra baby scene and we've had yeah. um, Roger and Lyra running around and kind of introducing things in that way. Do you think maybe that they thought that more characters need introducing before the main thrust of the story starts? Yeah, I think this is fairly standard first episode TV series business. They're they're showing you the settings, they're showing you the people. Um, they do that quite nicely by having kind of Azriel arriving. Um, to speak to the scholars and everyone sort of gets a bit of a, an introduction to him and what he's about and what the college's position on him is, you know, mm. it is, it's pretty standard TV and I think they've handled it quite well in that sense. Mm. You know, they've, they've kind of given us a nice progression of, we spend quite a bit of time with Lyra and Roger realizing that they're important 
we've sort of seen Asriel's connection to her. So we know that there's that connection there. And that, yeah, so she's in the Master of Jordan's care. We've seen all that sort of thing. Um, and I think that they, you know, it's a pretty overall, I mean, this is given the summary before the end. It's kind of a dry episode, but it does work reasonably well to introduce things. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, it's, it's fairly dry, but it's classic pilot or first episode. Yeah. Where it kind of has to be out of necessity of introducing you think of stuff like Game of Thrones and the way the TV series starts is literally like the king arrives and gets introduced to everyone with his family. Like you, that's what you do in TV. You kind of get the main players and the main set and established fast. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, so you've got uh, Lyra and Roger running through Jordan. Um, you get a little bit of a sense of Lyra's character, I think, from some of the stuff that she does. She's oh, yeah. cheeky. Bit playful, bit wayward. Yeah. Bit um, of a rule breaker. Yeah. And they go into the crypts and they do discuss a little bit of demon stuff at this point. They do. Um, they talk about what what forms they think their demons will settle on. So that lets us know that the demons won't be able to change shape forever. Mm. I do think here they did miss an opportunity to do more discussion of the demons in a more organic way. Because in the books they mm. find the little tokens that represent the dead scholars' demons and they talk about demons. And I think that, I don't know... Every now and then the show does kind of lever in expositionary dialogue or text or whatever, where actually it had the perfect opportunity to not need it or to hide the fact that that's yeah. what it was doing. But let's be honest, the books do that as well sometimes. So, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. They they do briefly mention about uh, the demons disappearing after when you death. Die. Yeah. Yeah. Where do you think they go? Why don't they leave a skeleton? These are all questions I want to know the answers to as well, to be honest. I did think the settling conversation was kind of cute in in the idea that they'd each kind of discussed with their demons what they might settle as. Yeah, can you imagine that conversation? Yeah. I want to see it. Lyra's kind of mean to pan about it as well, because she's like, he thinks it's going to be a lion, but I think he's going to be a sloth or a guinea pig. Yeah, like you're you're either going to be weak or lazy. Yeah, and no, it's like, I'm that's your own soul. Like, yeah. you, self-burn, Lyra. <laughs> I must say, they... I don't think that Pan and Lyra communicate as much with each other as I was expecting them to. They do have some conversations, mm. but I'm not getting that sense that there's a kind of, there's definitely a companionship, but I'm not getting the sense as much of their bond, if I'm honest with you at the minute. Yeah, I have seen a couple of comments sort of floating around on in the online kind of ether that there wasn't a lot of talking with Pan. And as a result, you know, you can't really get that connection as much because otherwise it's all in... Lyra's head or all in their heads you know and yeah. you can't really yeah I mean maybe that's something that will develop as the show goes on I don't know but I mean I, I it just struck me that actually the demons and the humans don't communicate directly that much apart from Stelmaria and Azriel. like they have a good old chat um, in this very next scene in fact so we cut to up north um, I thought this looked really cool yeah didn't it Azriel on the mountain top photographing the lights yeah and- and Stelmaria just looking looking great, really. Yeah. Because I always found it hard to imagine Stelmaria just because she is a massive snow leopard walking around with this guy. But I thought they did a really good job. And I yeah. thought her um, voice was really good because it kind of matched Asriel slash James McAvoy's voice well. I don't know. It, they just paired well together. Yeah, they both sound of a similar sort of class, age. Yeah authoritativeness yeah but I, I was it was quite interesting that Stelmaria in that scene is kind of bossing him around a bit and calling the <laughs> shots a bit and 
you know, it's that concept of like, if the demon's your soul, it's kind of tugging at you. It's telling you what you need to know sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I really just enjoyed the way that whole bit looked. Um, yeah. And it, that was nice. Yeah. We get a little bit of like, oh, they're developing the pictures. There's something mysterious. Yeah, he goes back to the, his little kind of research station mm -hmm. or whatever and him and his assistant are looking at what he's just photographed. And yeah, there's kind of that, oh, he sees something that we don't get to see yeah. yet. A little bit of teasing going on. And, and then he reveals that he's going to take it to Jordan and take yeah. a severed head with him. Though you don't know it's a severed head at that point. He says, I'm taking my friend. If I can't convince them, he will, and put something fairly head-shaped into an icebox. I don't know whether you would see that as a head, but, I mean, I could be wrong. I just I, thought it looked a bit weird. I mean, yeah, you might be right. Maybe it's not obviously a head, but, you know, off, off, they're, off they're going to pull some strings. Yeah, but this is certainly a more detailed Lord Asriel portrayal. We've had more Lord Asriel than probably in the entirety of Northern Lights. And the film. Yeah. Moreover. Although I have to admit, comparing the film to the TV series, there's something about Daniel Craig that feels a bit more Asriel to me, even though I didn't think he was a great choice. Yeah, there is a bit more of the hint of cruelty. They don't shy away from that in the way Asriel's actually like written in the TV show at all. But I don't know, there's something about James McAvoy. He wants to give you a hug. Yeah, I feel he's a bit warm. Yeah, um, he's just got some sort of something about him that's like just a good guy, you know, so it's kind of hard to believe him being kind of... Because you see him being cruel to Lyra a bit later, but yeah. it seems really out of whack. Like, it doesn't James seem McAvoy, like... James stop yeah. that behaviour right now. Exactly. <laughs> it seems quite out of character, even though it's kind of not at all, yeah. which is an odd feeling to get from it. Um. So it's at that point, uh, quite a weird point, I think, title sequence. Yeah. Well, we've had, it's given us a bit of a cold open, hasn't it? Something to get us into it before it shows us the title sequence, yeah. which I really like the title sequence. Yeah, I think Game of Thrones really upped that intro game, didn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would still argue that Game of Thrones sequence is better. Mm. Um, that's real cool with all the mechanical dioramas coming up out of the table and yeah. stuff. But and the, obviously the like iconic music and stuff. But I think shows seem to have like decided that the, title sequences are they now. matter yes yeah definitely some effort's gone into this i love the sort of mc escher style staircases mm. and things like that some little hints for those book readers out there some little bits from the books of future things just hidden throughout yeah which is quite nice mm -hmm. uh, and then we snap back from the title sequence yes into lyra scratching a name into her desk and for some reason I find it really funny that she gives um, Pan like the surname Balakwa as well, well Lyra she's and writing Pantalime and Balakwa and I was like hey how's the surname that's so cute yeah little, little cute Pan Balakwa like at this yeah. point I think I probably want a spin-off series already that's just about Pan that's just kind yeah. of like a version of this TV series but narrated with Pan's thoughts all the way through or something it's constantly him just being like oh god not again oh, for fuck's sake Lyra um, so we actually see Lyra in class and I really liked this whole scene um, I thought it was really nicely played because it gave a good sense of, of a few different things it gave a sense of what Lyra's like i.e. Yeah. she does not pay attention yeah um, it gave the fact that she's quite smart because she she is able tricks. to yeah she tricks the librarian into getting out of it but it also gave a little bit of information about the magisterium so 
she accidentally says, like, I am God instead of we are, we are God. We are as God. We are as God. Yeah, that's it. she's reciting back to him what he's mm. teaching her. And she's supposed to say we are as gods, but she says, you know, we are gods. And then he's like, oh, blasphemy, Lyra. I yeah. thought we were protected by a scholastic sanctuary. Yeah, but we have to protect. Our protection is essentially the answer. So yes. you get you get this sense that the magisterium are more or less green lighting or red lighting everything that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also she asks the librarian to get her a book when she's trying to do a little diversion tactic. And the book that she asks to read is, or that for him to read is, um, The Motivation the temptations of the serpent in the garden of eden which wow that's some heavy reading for a young child he's like oh the magisterium wouldn't approve so you get this sense that the magisterium is religious it's a religious organization Mm -hmm. very much so and a powerful one and then he goes to get the book eventually and while he's in the cupboard getting it she legs it out the window (laughs) yeah and runs across the roofs um yeah so it's a brilliant kind of little espionage move from lyra very Mm -hmm. Very nice. Yeah. Cut to Master prepping the poison. Yeah, to poison Azrael. What we can assume is a poison. It's a poison. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way his handshakes when he's putting it in the bottle, it's certainly not sweetness, is it? <laughs> Don't get him to make you a cocktail. It'd be all over the place. Yeah, definitely not. And his his demon, again, is sort of driving him on. I thought that yeah. was interesting. His, his little birdie is, uh, now's the time sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Has to be done. We get a little shot of the Alethia meter. We do, very briefly. And a book, which he's clearly been reading about it as well, mm. which is all just, I don't, it kind of doesn't add anything to the story, but I'm just like, oh, yes, that imagery, give what? it to me. Yeah. <laughs> what are you, on the imagery topic, what What do you think of the design of the Alethia meter? Oh, it's controversial. Do you think? Well, according to the, the wider world of book readers, the fact that it's not round is shocking to some people. I mean, I am kind of a so bit... round dial in a square case. I mean, is that that upsetting? Apparently so. I mean, I would say, like, I didn't imagine it that way in my head, but it doesn't, like, upset me. It's just a vis- visual... So one one thing it looks a bit like is an astrolabe, which is for... It's kind of like a sextant, maybe, but for tracing the position of planets. So, like, if you know, for example, where the horizon and one planet is, it kind of can calculate What's where sextant, it's... Chris? It's a navigational device that's particularly popular in shipping and... Chris is boring facts. Thank you. So, but it does. That's what it looks like. And I thought that's really interesting. Why is it interesting that it looks like something that tracks the position of the planets? Oh, book wizard. Um... (laughs) Because how was the Alethia meter invented? This is a little tiny bit spoilery, but it's not really critical to the plot of either the TV show or the book. So I'm going to go there. Um, it was. It create- does come up in the book. Not that it might not come up in. No, the No, no, no. As in, it won't, I don't think it will come up in the show. Sorry. Yeah. It was created because someone wanted to make like a compass, essentially, but for a planet. For tracking the position of Mars. For, for tracking the position of Mars. Yeah. And they wanted and- it to respond to the idea of Mars because compasses respond to the idea of north because they didn't know that magnetism existed and all that shit. And so actually what it does is it responds to your ideas and tells you the truth. Kind of like a weird mishmash of astrology and and an astrolabe. And that's why it makes sense that in the show it looks like one, I I like the word astrolabe. Astrolabe. It's a great word. Beautiful word. Anyway, yeah, Chris's boring facts. Thanks for that. Completely lost 
track of time and space because of that. Where you um, just told us how you liked the imagery of the oh, yeah. Eater, which <laughs> yeah. is what made me think of it. Yeah. Um, so Lyra watches from the window. Kind of an obvious place to hide. You could pretty much see her quite clearly there. Well, she does have to duck while he's adding the poison. Yeah, that's true. That is that's quite a funny bit when she's like, not for family reunions, and then someone walks through the door and she's just like, "Well, that was a bit close." Oh yeah, because because Pan's sort of like we shouldn't mm. like there's rules the the retiring room is forbidden, and she's like, "Not for reunions." Yeah, and then immediately ducks. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a nice like fun moment, but yeah. Um, Pan's, Pan's kind of her voice of reason as well. Mm-hmm. Lots of people's demons are people's voice of reason. Which makes kind of sense, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. It was a nice comedy moment. Um, and then Asriel comes in, he's going to drink the drink, it's got the poison in it, and Lyra does a dramatic... Dive in through the window and yes, knock the drink out of his hand. Uh-huh. And, and this is when he sort of shows a bit of cruelty because he snatches her up, doesn't he, and pins her to the desk. <laughs> Uh, but then after he's realised her, it's her, he keeps her there and threatens to break her arm. Yeah, he like properly, not even just like twists her arm back, but like proper like head on the table, like yeah, yeah. blimmin' neck. Proper kind of special forces moment yeah. or something. Like, Show your beans, Asriel. It's like, I'll break your arm. Yeah, and then his response to like what Laurie tells him is like, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get this little girl to like hide in a trunk and spy for me. Yeah. Brilliant. Quite kind of makes sense if you need a spy. Although I do wonder why... I mean, obviously, if Lyra doesn't see it and isn't involved from the start, it makes the plot harder to develop. But he's got a demon. Why doesn't Stelmaria just observe the Master's reactions? So many questions. Yeah. But, you know, we, we get to be a kind of little audience insert through Lyra and watch what goes on yeah. in the yeah. meeting they're about to have. So they have the little meeting... In the uh, the retiring room, the master swears the scholars to secrecy about what they see. Get we get some more talk about academic freedom. I feel like whoever wrote the script for this had a real bee in their bonnet about academic freedom. Yeah, well, I mean, it's being encroached upon massively mm-hmm. in Britain. I would say possibly around the world. Yeah. So you know, maybe they do actually have a bee in their bonnet about that. Mm. Or maybe they're just trying to make it topical for a very, very small subset of viewers like all me. all the academics watching it. <laughs> all the academics. All five of them. <laughs> There's like probably 10 academics in the world that would be watching that TV show. The rest of them are too busy doing all the extra work universities make them do topical. Yeah, so they, they kind of have a little bit of a talk about that. Basically sort of saying that the master doesn't want to draw attention to Jordan what? College. Yeah. So they need to kind of keep it stum because they're guessing that whatever Asriel was saying, it ain't going to be magisterium approved. Yeah, you get this sense that everyone knows that Asriel is just a fucking loose cannon, basically. Yeah, he's like, a liability. He's the Che Guevara of Lyra's universe yeah. or something, I don't know. <laughs> we get to see... I was going to say James McAvoy's pictures then. I just don't want to call him Lord Asriel. I just want to call him James McAvoy. You get to see James McAvoy's holiday snaps from yeah. his visit to Lapland. Except he wasn't in Lapland. He was being sneaky. Oh boy, wouldn't we love to see those pictures? Uh, I thought the pictures looked great. Oh yes, the way they showed, they mm. depicted the dust uh, clinging to the person and, and yeah. the city in the sky. All really nice looking stuff. One thing you can certainly say about the show is it looks good. Mm-hmm. Like they've they've... They've made a good effort to make things look good. 
Yeah. So what does this mean? What do these pictures mean? Well, they, they mean that dust is, as we suspected, attracted to adults and not children. That's not a good James McAvoy impression, is it? It's terrible. No, I don't know why. Please never do that again. I will not. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, yeah. So we, we get a sense, and, and also he says that the magisterium is as the magisterium suspected. So we immediately get this sense that, okay, dust matters. The magisterium care about dust. Yeah. Everyone at Jordan must, or he wouldn't be here talking to them about it. There's a bit of a kind of classic Kurosawa-style action-reaction shot where we see the way the scholars are reacting to what he's saying. So we, we know that they're a little bit worried that if he's talking about things the magisterium are interested in and investigating, there could be trouble. Mm. I think what, what was a bit confusing, maybe, what raises questions is if Azrael is kind of proving the point that the magisterium have already made, why is that heretical and why is that problematic? Yeah, that's a good question. I know, right? Maybe it's just that you're not supposed to know everything and this is getting too mm-hmm. close to knowing things the magisterium wouldn't necessarily want people to know. It's definitely a bit of a weird one. It is a bit weird. It kind of works in the sense that it gives you this idea that people are dead scared of the magisterium and the magisterium's knowledge. Mm. But yeah, a bit of a strange moment there, actually, now you come to mention it. And then we get Lord Asriel's friend, the frozen head. Yeah, Grumman. (laughs) Grumman, sorry. (laughs) It did make me laugh how um, he kind of asks one of the scholars, like, you knew him. Tell me, does it look like him? You can't see anything. As the the viewer, you're like, what is his vague face? Block of dirty eyes. And this guy that he gives the head to to idea is ancient crockety guy that can barely speak let alone see sort of goes well it's quite difficult to tell and then he snatches the head away and he's like that'll do pig that'll do <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like hmm. grumman confirmed so is it grumman we don't well, know yeah and the suggestion Didn't is we? that he was killed by the magisterium because he knew something yeah which is a difference from the book yes that's right by a group of people that inhabit or at least operate around the north and I think essentially they're maybe just cutting to the chase a bit with yeah, that sort of yeah. info because, you know, each episode's an hour. They've and got also, eight hours to tell the story. And also kind of adding to the fact that the magisterium is bad. They want you to know that the magisterium yeah. is bad. Yeah. Bad and magisterium, bad. That's it. It goes back to that. This is the classic introductory episode. Like, we're going to find out our main antagonist and our main protagonist or this show ain't going to work. So we've got mm-hmm. Lyra, we've got the magisterium. Everyone in between grey areas which I'm a fan of I'm a fan of the fact that Asriel's a bit mean I'm a fan of the fact that the master's motives are a bit unclear with the poison and stuff Mm. you know but but I do think it's reasonable that they've kind of made sure you know the magisterium are bad or at least people are scared of them and they're Mm. capable of murder and all this sort of stuff yeah and from there we move on to meet another group of people the Egyptians I really liked this little scene the, the settling ceremony i thought it was real nice it was, it's a nice concept isn't it they're holding yeah. this ceremony to celebrate one of their kids demons finally taking its last shape its final form mm. like just the little details that were included like the fact that they use the silver from like different people put like bits of silver in and it creates yeah. and they have a ring and you know yeah. like a badass animal ring like that matches my demon that'd be cool mm. and it's a hawk yeah also cool demon nice Good one, Tony. Tony Costa. Yeah. yeah. The Egyptian kid they're celebrating. Mm. Who And then then through that we also, so we meet Tony Costa, we meet Mark Costa, who must be important, right? Uh, we meet <laughs> Billy Costa. He's going to yeah. be important, but he's not going to be in the episode for long. No. Mark Costa, probably my biggest gripe out of the whole thing. 
because she is not what I imagined Mark Oster to be. I mean, let's just be honest, Mark Oster's meant to be quite a large lady. She's meant to be like a proper mama bear. Yeah. You know, like fierce, but kind of kind and sure. I, I do think that she's a bit, she comes off as being maybe a little bit too soft and at the whim of others as the episode mm. develops. She's really well played. I can't remember the actress's name. Um, Anne-Marie Duff, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we're wrong, someone will let us know. Yeah, I think she acts well, but I'm, I'm not so keen on what we've seen of Mark Oster as a character yet. Mm. But that could change. Yeah. But can I just say, so they hold this settling ceremony and mm. she announces like who will, you know, essentially guide Tony Costa now that he's becoming a man or whatever. Mm. And so somebody steps out of the, the crowd behind him is the actor Jeff Bell playing Egyptian. So I think we're going to have more significant Egyptian characters in this than we do the book. Because Jeff Jeff Bell's a, <laughs> he's kind of a character actor. He plays a lot of like gangsters in films like The oh, Business Oh, him, yes, I know stuff. who you mean, yeah. Yeah. Um, I would assume you wouldn't hire him unless that character is going to get a bit of dialogue and a bit to do. So mm. I think maybe we're going to see some development amongst more of the Egyptian characters. Might be cool. Potentially. Um, the Egyptians are a little bit more... I guess um, in the the books, they're kind of portrayed as a little bit more like what we would imagine sort of traveller Roma people to be like. Yeah, more more a sort of a, maybe an ethnic group. Yeah. Um, whereas in this, they kind of seem a little bit more like just kind of hippies. The, the quote unquote new age travellers that British tabloids were fond of writing about in the 90s. Yeah, it's a little, it's a bit more of a different vibe, I think. And I can't quite put my finger on what that is. I think it's maybe their appearance. They don't have the sort of, the sort of traditional kind of... You do, I mean, you do imagine them in kind of traditional travellery attire and things, but I guess that's just a case of maybe filling in what the Egyptians are like from just imagining things you know in the real Mm, world mm. to some extent. Like, I don't, I don't know whether they might have changed them a bit to avoid being accused of creating them as being some sort of like pastiche of travellers yeah. or Romanies in the I real world. I did wonder that because um, we had a little conversation about the fact that Egyptians is off obviously um, kind of a take on the word gypsy and the word gypsy is now becoming, you know, a, not a preferred term basically. It's a yeah. pejorative term for Roma or travelling people. Yeah. Um, so perhaps they wanted to move away from that slightly and have us and kind of create their own community. Probably one of the things that is most noticeable is the fact that we have people from a mixed variety of um, backgrounds. So um, I'd say the books, I want to say the books are quite white, but that said, it's kind of not described that way. It's more no. of a lack of mentioning. So they've kind of made a bit more of an effort to sort of um, diversify the people that feature in Lyra's world. I'm sure some people are going to have an issue with that. I yeah, I, I hope it's not just an issue about just the diversity of the cast because I don't think there's that much of a problem with that at all, really. Like, one thing you can say is, you know, they've so they've made John Farr, the ruler of the Egyptians, essentially black, but nowhere in the books does it say he's white. Mm-mm. And nowhere really. does it really matter if he's white or black, so... yeah. So I hope any kind of criticisms are a little bit more nuanced. Yeah. There's focus on Tony as well, the Tony Costa. I think maybe, like you said about the other character, that there might be more of a focus on because he's a big actor. Yeah. They also spend kind of the whole settling ceremony is Tony's thing and 
the the attention is kind of focused on him. And Tony is in the books a sort of side character. A bit, a yeah. A side side character, really. Your, your main Egyptian characters in the books are Mark Oster, Father Coram, John Farr, really. Yes. That's about it. But it seems like they might be setting Tony up to be a little bit more active and involved because he's the one who's looking for Billy. He's the one that's talking to people about things, mm. talking well, to Well, we've John not Farr even gotten to what happens with Billy. Oh. You've jumped ahead of where we're at. I'm sorry. It's all right because Billy Costa gets kidnapped pretty quickly, doesn't he? Damn quick, yeah. Yeah. There's a weird fox demon thing. Mm, silver fox. With like red eyes? Yeah. It sort of appears and stalks him briefly and then yeah. he's snatched away, isn't he? We're going we're gonna to talk about something that I feel very strongly about now. Billy's demon is called Ratta. This is going to mean absolutely nothing to anyone who hasn't read the book. But there is a, another character who has a demon called Ratta. And that character happens to be... Tony Macarius. Yes, and I would say that Tony Macarius is like a favourite character of mine in a really bizarre way. I, like, I have a lot of love for Tony Macarius because he has a very important part to play in the book. He does. And I suspect, in the story. without going into spoilers, I suspect that Billy will fulfil that part. Yes. Um, but there is a, a sense in the book of he as a character is just this disenfranchised, very poverty-stricken, vulnerable child, and it tells you something about the nature of the people that are doing the kidnapping mm-hmm. because they're targeting children like that. Um, I suspect that the change is simply because it means that other characters, the Costas, the Egyptians, have got more of an investment from the start in the fact that children are being kidnapped. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I understand why those choices might have been made. You know, they kind of want to cut down on non-essential characters, I suppose. But I just think that Tony's story, um, so, you know, he's got a kind of an alcoholic mother, like very poor. He's kind of manipulated emotionally and to kind of go with the, the gobblers rather than being kind of kidnapped as such. Yeah. Um, and all these kind of little beats really show how like you say, how bad the people are that are taking them because they are deliberately targeting vulnerable people. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, some of that maybe is lost. There is some indication that um, through conversations that people have, the Egyptians have, that they've tried to contact the police, but the police won't do anything. And that's a kind of a, it's very much a... Yeah, the oh, police yeah. don't care about Egyptians, basically. Yeah. So there's that kind of, but, it, but it's, I don't know, I quite think the thing is, Sarah really loves... <laughs> Tony Macarius and the way he's written in the book he is a sort of a this kid you want to take under your wing sort of thing so I get it oh you it. just want to like take him home and like wrap him in a blanket and feed him soup and like and maybe that's the bigger issue maybe it's that we never really got a sense of who Billy Costa is before he was kidnapped mm. because you literally see him on the stage at the settling ceremony for a minute and then he's gone and everything about him is more his family and his community's reaction to that yeah I, I feel like Maybe depending on how you feel about Tony Macarius, that would be a bigger or smaller gripe for people that have read the book. Mm. But I get it. I get why that bothered yeah. you. I mean, it, ma- it made it into my notes as well that yeah. they'd done away with Tony Macarius. They did that in the film. Yeah. In defence of the decision, I did say when we did our special you on did. the film that that could work, but they didn't make it work in the film. Yeah. So hopefully I, they'll make it work. In I the imagine show. that if you're a non-book reader that you probably... Don't care. <laughs> no. So let's move on. Because you don't on. know. Yeah. 
<laughs> this is brilliant. Lord Asriel forgets that he has put Lyra in the trunk. Stelmaria has to remind him. Um, <laughs> but he, but Stelmaria calls her the girl as well, which is quite um, yeah awkward. I mean, I, I think mean. that shows something. You know, Stelmaria is Asriel's soul. It shows you a bit of his demeanour towards her in a way. Mm-hmm. The girl. And then he goes into sort of doing some real nice, like, uncle stuff. Mm. Carries her upstairs, undoes her shoes, and then he realises that she's actually awake. It's quite tender for an uncle. Not in keeping with him trying to wrench her arm out of its socket. (laughs) Not exactly, no. Bit of a kind of change, a sudden change. And then Lyra kind of asks him a bit of a question about dust, and he's all like, take me north. Mm. See, when he told her to spy in the retiring room, and sort of said, look at the master's reaction when you mentioned dust. I was a bit like, is dust something that's commonly understood then? But her reaction at this point says, no, she doesn't know what dust is at all. Mm. <laughs> the kind of confusing part about this is that he doesn't actually ask her what she noticed about the master. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He's like, you never actually get that feedback. Like, So it was kind of pointless. So like, was that always his intention? It's kind of, you're right, from start to finish, like everything we've said about that whole bit of the retiring room, like why didn't he just get Stelmaria to look? Like why was Lyra in the thing in the first place he doesn't even ask? Unless he wanted her to know. Maybe. Oh, okay, so it could be dead clever and something totally unshown, but it could be like he thought, he thought, oh, they've tried to poison me. Maybe when I say all this stuff, they'll just top me and get rid of me. And like I'd like <laughs> and a what witness. I need is a little 12-year-old girl we're just a witness that's hidden <laughs> that maybe could actually escape and tell someone. But I mean, that all seems pretty like cerebral and internal logic, considering none of that was shown. Yet. Yeah, it does a little bit. Maybe, yeah, maybe he just wanted her to sort of see what was going on. Yeah. For some reason. Um, this is followed up by a conversation between the master and the librarian, which I really love. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really lovely conversation because it sets up the sort of the stage for the wider books really that there is some kind of prophecy about Lyra that she has this destiny to fulfill so there's all of that side but also I feel like there's some real nice moments where you can tell that the master and the librarian really care about her yeah and I thought the librarian in particular acted this really well where you know earlier on he was a little bit stern with her and all of this but he really cares about her and they're gonna have to let her go on this journey that's potentially really bad (laughs) yeah well they they also show some kind of humanity you get the feeling Mm. that like they you know they again they tried to kill Azrael, but they didn't mean it (laughs) (laughs) but it was you know what they kind of had to do it was a what what plot is here yeah like the master has taken his um kind of oath to protect lyra very seriously so he'll even protect her from lord Azrael. yeah i thought it was interesting that he specifically mentions knowing her destiny because he's read the alethiometer as well mm. the alethia how are we saying it how are they saying it in they're the saying show? alethiometer alethiometer so he's read it and that makes sense like how he knows she's got fate and all the rest of it he can read the alethiometer yeah go you smart yeah. guy but but he, he also says of lyra um that they should be afraid of her meaning he and the librarian so you mm. get this in sense that he's read some like immense power potentially or disturbance in her future in the force yeah i sensed a great <laughs> disturbance in the force the minute i opened the alethiometer um then we get a weird scene between lyra and roger that i don't that i felt was a bit 
I don't know. It's just a very odd scene. So he steals a sausage for her. No, he steals a sausage for himself. Don't be crude. Like a, like a, a weird sausage scene between Lyra and Will. Yeah. It's, well, it is on at nine o'clock at night, to be fair, yeah. but they are children, Just so like, also. Yeah. Um, I think it's meant to show how close they are, really, this, yeah. this little conversation. They talk about Billy Costa going missing. The mention of gobblers happens, so we kind of get told that, um, or Roger says that the gobblers have probably taken him and Lyra kind of goes that's just a myth. So if we're introduced for the first time to this idea that um, there is something called gobblers and some people believe they are real and some people do not. And then that we kind of just come out of that scene. That that, that scene is then done. Yeah, and they blast off to Azriel's airship because he's about to leave, right? Yeah, and she does, she does a whole little thing. She runs to him and she begs to be taken to the north and he refuses. And there's a weird moment when... Lyra asks about her parents. Yeah. Is this like the airship my parents died in? And he answers with, no, it was smaller. smaller. I also thought there's like a weird bit in the conversation where he he's putting her off going with him uh, and then he, he makes as if he's going to say something. And I'm like, is he going to say I love you or something like yeah. that? And then he sort of shuts his mouth and boots her off the airship. Yeah, he, he's thing. doing a very sort of I'm angry, but also like a bit pensive type. Yeah scenario here um there's a there's a good little bit of dialogue between roger and asriel which i have in fact written down are you gonna quote oh you know i love a good quote um roger says she's better than you think she is she's special and uh, <laughs> lord asriel comes by with everyone's special which i just think is the best line it's such a singer <laughs> like, i just <laughs> i'd love to see a supercut of like that line taken out of his dark materials, just the audio, and put over the everyone scene in Leon as well. <laughs> what right, else, for Chris? your fancy your fancy film knowledge. Oh wow, would Gary Oldman not be a good Lord Asriel? He's short, and I think one of our no. criticisms of James McAvoy is that he doesn't mm. seem very imposing. But... No, that was your thing about James McAvoy McAvoy. McAvoy. <laughs> McAvoy being short. Just against people being short. Thing is with the power of TV is that you can make people appear taller than they are. So that really That's doesn't true. matter. They did it in The Hobbit. They sure did. Maybe the budget doesn't extend to making outsized or undersized furniture and so on. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> just for James McAvoy. <laughs> yeah, just so that I can be pleased with the height of Lord Asriel. <laughs> Dear BBC, I would like to complain about the height of Lord Asriel in your recent His Dark Materials adaptation. <laughs> Surely you must have known there are ways to make people appear taller. <laughs> so, God, that's put me right off kilter. Lord Asriel looks pensive mm. as he leaves, even after he said his zinger of a line. Um, he kind of looks very dramatic in his, his airship now. Sniped off the helicopter, yeah. got himself an airship, he looks very pensive, um, and then he flies away. Yeah, shuts his door and off he trots. Um, we go back to the Egyptians. Yeah, they, they've been organising search parties for Billy. We see how they've divided the map up. And yeah, we see that a few times. They yeah. are real proud of how they've divided that map yeah, up. Yeah, they are. And also real proud of the fact they've not found him in any of the places that they've no. uh, And John Farr, or Lord Farr, as we were introduced to him as at first, turns up in Oxford 
which is... A bit of a departure from the book. We don't meet him till much later, do we, in Mm-mm. the books? And Lyra meets him at the same time as the audience does as well. Yeah. So we've got a slightly earlier coming into the story. I don't mm. think that makes... You mean a... in the book, Lyra yeah, meets... Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, I don't think that makes much of a difference that it's now. No. I think the only difference really is in the book, you get a sense that the Egyptians are more of a distributed community and they come together at critical mm. moments, whereas in this they seem to be travelling as one. Yeah. We also meet Father Corum, who... He's a lot... On the topic of height, he's a lot taller than he's imagined in the book and a lot stronger looking. Oh, I don't know about height-wise, but definitely strength-wise because Father Corum in the book is meant to be quite frail. He's old. He's quite sort of softly spoken and kind of... He's, like, wise. Yeah. Um, obviously in this, he's... He's, he's big. Yeah. Real big. Yeah. Like, he, he kind of follows John Farr around quite closely, which he does in the book, but it almost comes off as like a bodyguard vibe mm-hmm. to me. Um, yeah. Whereas, really, it's almost the other way in the books, isn't it? Like, John Farr is this big imposing guy with a war hammer and all this stuff. Oh, no, he keeps his war hammer hung up. Yeah, okay, but, but he, he owns a war hammer. Yeah, he used to use it. <laughs> maybe maybe John Farr also owns a war hammer in the yeah. TV series. I felt like John Farr in this just didn't have a lot of presence. He's meant to be the king of the Western Egyptians, and I he he came over like just a little bit. He was he was quite quietly spoken, a little mumbly. I thought it was quite unclear um, some of the things that he was saying, and I just didn't get that vibe from him that he was kind of. I mean, he's he's not meant to be kind of stern as such, but he's got a presence. He's, oh. he's, he's I, come on, Stan. he he raises an army in three days in the book. Oh God, you love that bit I so do. much. That's one of my favourite bits in the books. He's like, what we're going to do is we're going to raise an army and we're going to just go to a completely different country and basically like invade <laughs> almost. And and everyone's like, yeah, of course we will, because John Farr said so, and they do. Yeah. Whereas in this, it's almost like a role reversal. You've got the big, stern, imposing presence of Father Corum and the softer spoken, but seeming quite wise, Yeah, John Farr. And it's a bit, yeah, they've almost switched. It's it's a little bit strange. The dynamic feels a little odd. Um, so I'll be intrigued to see how that goes going forward, whether that will continue to be the same kind of way. I wonder if Father Corum's going to be more of an action character as well. Maybe. Do you think they might end up like killing Corum off like in a battle or something? Well, that's thinking ahead. And that's why they've needed to kind of switch the characters around a bit. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but there is the mention that if they do not find Billy soon, they're going to head to London because that's where they think gobblers are. Yeah. So we've got the mention of gobblers again and kind of, again, the mention that some people think they are not real, they're a myth, whereas other people seem to be a little bit more mm. convinced. They do. The Egyptians do feel the gobblers have taken quite a lot of their children as well, don't they? And they say 16. Yeah, they'll be taking them to London because you can't really hide that many children in Oxford, but in yeah. London you can. Uh, then there's another weird bit where Lyra dreams about going north. Oh, God, and she does a weird shadow puppet. We get a little, a little vignette. Bit, yeah, of... I was going to say, it all goes a bit art film at this point. I think so. I'll just say at this point, when I saw that second Egyptian scene, I was like, it seems like Lyra and the Egyptians kind of haven't met, and yet somehow she knows what's going on with them, or Roger does. And big part of what happens in that vignette scene is actually you see a postcard from Lord Asriel telling Lyra off for stealing the Egyptians' boats. And I wonder if that was just like a... 
oh shit, we need to explain like how Lyra even knows the Egyptians exist kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. But like, would you have even like had the time to read that if you weren't? Well, I think the only reason I paid any attention to it is because way prior to the show coming out, after the kind of preview airing that was shown at some cinemas, um, there were a few kind of screenshots of postcards yeah. shared and I was kind of like, oh, there's postcards. So when I saw it, it was like, oh, there's a postcard pause because I was watching it on stream on iPlayer, pause, read. And it's basically Asriel like, how dare you take the Egyptians' boats? But also, quite a bold move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, I guess it's a, an easy way of telling a bit of story, but also is it because are most people reading no. stuff that's on the wall? I no. doubt many people would have read that. It, it may, it's a bit of an Easter egg for the book readers. Yeah, that's kind really. of cute. Yeah. So we have Lyra doing finger puppy bits. Dreaming of dreaming of North, um, which is drawn on her wall. And then it's time for a Magisterium chat. Yeah, we get this new Magisterium character who was in the films to some extent. In the film, sorry. Yeah. Not in the book. And he's talking to Lord Boreal. Yes. Meeting Lord Boreal in the context of him being a Magisterium operative, effectively. Yeah, so we've this this is new as yeah. like this is this is all new stuff yeah. we've got a very militaristic vibe going on yeah they're in this lots big of senate type yeah, yeah. Senate, yeah lots of marble Ooh. yeah dark coloured floors very very religious though and I have to say I'm happy about that I'm happy they've not shied away from the theme of the magisterium being religious yeah lots of mentions of heresy yeah so many mentions of heresy mentions of talking to the cardinal and, and the person that Lord Boreal is speaking to this kind of shot caller guy for the magisterium he refers to his father like mm-hmm. you full on see that the magisterium and faith are like that crossed fingers is what I'm doing here They're yeah you right were doing them at the microphones if you could do it near enough that they could hear that your fingers were crossed um, and in the end, Lord Boreal kind of gets asked to spy on mm, Lord Asriel. Yeah, and also to not tell their mutual friends. Not to tell her. <sighs> Cue the entrance of the one and only Mrs Coulter. With Marissa a bit of the Imperial Coulter. March. Yeah, it's quite a militaristic, villainous theme she marches into, isn't it? Golden <laughs> monkey in tow. <laughs> yeah, great character introduction, I have to say. Anyone who's listened to me talking about the TV shows at all on the other podcasts, I was really, really, I had reservations about... Ruth Wilson. Yes, playing Mrs. Coulter. i got to say, I really actually enjoyed Mrs. Coulter. I did. Sorry, I take it back, Ruth. I take it back, Ruth. I enjoyed the way she was written as a character. Talk about Mm. why in a bit. There's a specific reason. But just, yeah. Can I just say, I didn't know whether to mention this or not, but I'm going to. I'm quite fond of the fact that there hasn't been heavy makeup used on any of the actors in the show. Yeah. Like I, I notice, you know, when you see Lyra, she looks like a child. You see Mrs. Coulter, she looks like a woman. Like they've not caked them in airbrush levels of foundation and stuff like that. I mean, they probably are still wearing a ton of makeup, but it's oh, natural looking they'll, they'll be wearing quite a bit of makeup just because of the way studio lights and stuff wash you out, but they've not gone to the point where it looks really Hollywood and cover girl magazine type yeah. thing, you know. No, they they actually look like real people. They do. So Mrs. Court turns up for dinner. She does like a proper, you know, scene where she, she walks in and all the men are like, ooh, mm. who's this woman? Because all the scholars at Jordan are men and all the students are. We get to see them all. And like literally the only woman at Jordan besides Mrs. Coulter is Lyra. She's a girl, but you know. Yeah. 
So it just demonstrates kind of Mrs. Coulter's effect on people in a really nice, de- nice, <laughs> I don't know what I said like that, really nice, simple way. We see that Mrs. Coulter is kind of a little bit magnetic. Yes. Um, she turns heads literally. Yeah, she does. And then she has sort of a little chat with Lyra and mm. they talk about how she's met Lord Asriel at the research station mm. and Lyra's sort of like, oh, you're an explorer. Um, I've noticed as well that she, she uses a, a trick of Lyra's, um, which is the old the old flattery trick, pretend you don't know stuff and then like flatter your way into the other person's good books. Lyra does that constantly with people, possibly more in the book than in the TV show but Mrs Coulter also mm. good at using that particular tactic because she gets Lyra on side by kind yeah. of being like I don't know what to do you'll have to tell me about things yeah like, get her talking yeah and then just kind of says oh you're so interesting and like, I look yeah. so interesting to talk to and stuff yeah. and there's a really horrible bit where Lyra ignores Roger and I hate it and it made my heart oh, break oh yeah when he's serving them and Lyra just more or less blanks him yeah and that's going to be even more heartbreaking in a minute, but we'll get to that. Oh, I just um, realised that I haven't said the word blank someone in like since I was at school. Yeah. Is that just an English school thing? Is blank that... means pretend someone's not there. Yeah. Ghost somebody. You, you're yeah. so down with the kids. Ain't I? And then yeah. someone will write in and be like, we've not said ghost for like three months. You're get well out, old. old man. We call it phantomizing people now. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah. I really like the way Coulter kind of ingratiates herself with Lyra. And you do see Lyra wrestle with that throughout the rest of the show a bit of like, mm, do I want to kind of be on side with Coulter or not? But I thought what was really clever was that um, Mrs. Coulter sort of starts to tell her a bit about the North and the Arctic research and that, mm. and then and goes, oh, but I won't bore you. And Lyra goes, oh, you could never bore me if you're talking about mm. the North. And Coulter immediately conjures this amazing image of the North oh. and draws her right in and I, that was the bit when Coulter's character won me over yeah. it was like what masterful manipulation when she says about the what standing in front of like the, the basically the wilderness and feeling so alone but like majestic or whatever she yeah. says and it's like oh and Lyra's all like I want that so much and you're yeah. well, well played Coulter yeah checkmate <laughs> <laughs> so Mrs Coulter offers to take well, no, she didn't offer to take her up north. She offers to take her on as an assistant and then with the kind of the tantalising promise that she'll be taken up north. Yeah. And um, But Lyra is kind of upset that Roger won't be allowed to go. So she kind of begs for Mrs Coulter to take him to and eventually she does. She just yeah. say that they'll... And Pan's a bit like, but Lyra, he's never been outside of this college kind of thing. Lyra's he like, is Don't very worry. considerate in this point of like, yeah. think about this Lyra, like what he might want. Not, not only is he the voice of reason, he's the voice of empathy, I think, for Lyra in yeah. some regards. And also, when Lyra and Mrs Coulter, they have like a little hug at the end. And they're like, oh, this is so exciting. And Mrs Coulter gets like a, a wistful look in her eye. Mm. Like she's thinking about something. What, what are you thinking about, Marissa? We just don't know. Well, that's a spoiler. Yeah, that'll be in the spoiler alerts. What, that she's called Marissa? <laughs> Oh, okay. No, the wistful look in her eye. I was, I'm, for some and what reason, that might mean. I love spoilers like that, where it's just something really stupid, like someone's name, and you're like, oh, I what can't believe all this time. What if they changed her name for the TV show? What if she's called Melissa Coulter? Melissa. Her golden monkey as well. We've not seen that much of him yet, but what you do see him in this episode, he flashes a lot of angry looks at people. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. He looks he looks good as well. Because I does. think I always struggle to imagine it in my head in the books. It's Golden Monkey. It's not like a, an image that comes easily to mind. But they've they've done a good job. Well, they've, they've gone with a literal. Golden uh, Monkey. Yeah. A Sichuan stub nose golden monkey. So That's proud of your is. monkey knowledge. I am. I am as well. We had a whole argument earlier about different kinds of yeah. monkeys. We actually agreed to call it and have the argument in the podcast because we thought it might be like interesting. I've, I feel like I've let it go now. Oh, I'm just okay. like, I'm okay with it. Like, whatever. If you say it's a, it what, a Szechuan snub-nosed monkey, yeah. then then sure. Dear listener, if you're interested, just Google pictures of monkeys and write in and let us know which you think it yeah. is. I mean, to be fair, we could have Googled pictures of monkeys. But it's much more fun to argue with each other. Isn't it just? But anyway, the monkey, he flashes some angry looks around get a sense that he might be a bit of a ragey boy and therefore <laughs> Mrs. Coulter might be a bit of a ragey lady. Mm-hmm. And then we see uh, Roger... Oh, in the corridors doing his, doing his porterage, drawings. being stalked by a silver fox. Is it a fox? It's a weird-looking thing. It's a... OK, here's another one, dear oh, listeners, to Google. It is a silver fox. Okay. I'm putting my foot down on this one. I can't think of another animal that looks like that. I did think maybe rough? wild dog, but wild dogs are patchy, spotty looking. and Yeah, Yeah. OK. Silver fox it is then. Um, I reckon. So the, the implication is there that he is about to get taken. Mm, we don't see that happen, but... Random scene. This is another random scene. I get a few of these uh, of, of Mark Costa just sitting and crying and Tony being like, they're there. And then that's yeah. the end of the scene. Well, it's kind of a juxtaposition, isn't it? Reminding us that oh, the last okay. time we saw that fox, a child went missing. Yeah, as if we couldn't remember that from... Well, you know, it is a kid's thing and it is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, okay. And it's nice to see kind of the emotional impact of what the gobblers are doing, I guess. Yeah. Lyra gets woken up by the librarian. Yeah, come to the master. They have a little conversation about the alethiometer. Lyra mm. gets given the alethiometer. What interested me is he says you've got to keep it a secret basically when he gives it to her and she says no I don't want secrets and tries to leave and I was like boy that's different from book Lyra. You'd tell Lyra anything's a secret and she's there in the book I reckon. <laughs> Lyra <laughs> jump down this massive hole filled with spikes it's a secret. Okay. Yeah but she would also tell everyone about it afterwards because <laughs> she's true. <laughs> kind of rubbish at keeping secrets. Yeah I thought if this this bit Fairly, fairly similar to the, I think almost word for word, similar to the book, really. In many um, parts, yeah. Just kind of um, explaining to her that it tells the truth. It says there's only six. Yeah. He does say they have to be licensed by the Magisterium, effectively. Yeah. Um, which is interesting. I thought it was also a bit of a, more of a hint if Coulter's music and the discussion of Coulter implied at the Magisterium wasn't enough. It was interesting that he sort of says to Lyra, you know, go with Coulter, but I don't know essentially if she's got the best interests at heart. He says, you know... He says he thinks she has. Yeah, but he can't be sure, something like that. So he's had to kind of make a bit of a gamble, I yeah. think, on where she's going to be best placed. And we're, we're, be- we're definitely being set up to see Coulter as a, a bit of an edgy character, as someone that might not be edgy. the goodest of goods. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Lyra goes off to find Roger. She can't. No. And this is real sad, right? Because last time she saw him, she blanked him. And then she's kind of like, where is he looking for him? Pan actually suggests maybe the gobblers have got him in the end. Yeah. And she's like, no, mm. refusing to believe it. But we, we kind of, given what we saw earlier of the silver fox, we're kind of like, yeah, he's probably, he's probably gone. Yeah. 
back to the Egyptians. John Farr's calling off the search for Billy Custer. Yeah. They have quite a good conversation at this point. He's like calm, but a little bit more John Farr-like, where yeah. he's kind of stern, but kind, where he's like, you know that he's gone missing. You know we won't find him. What we need to do is do what we can to find the children and help them, so we need to go to London. Yeah, what I did think was cool, and it kind of goes back to what you said about is John Farr imposing and powerful enough, is that at first, Mark Costa jumps onto the kind of narrow boat to confront Farr Corum and says like, oh, you're calling off the search, blah, 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 for Billy. Mm. And then John Farr sort of almost steps out of nowhere and says, no, it was me. And she immediately backs off. Like, if mm. you watch it, like, he he doesn't make any threatening moves or anything. He just walks around from where he was and says, no, it was me. And she immediately backpedals. And it's kind of like you get this sense that she really doesn't want to insult John Farr. He's not someone that mm. the Egyptians take lightly. Yeah, for sure. So that's kind of like the end of the episode for the Egyptians at least they're going to go to London mm-hmm. um, and at this point he actually says as well like the number he gives for the children they're going to rescue 27 so they've lost like 11 children since the last time we yeah. heard from them mm-hmm. but they're going to go and fight the gobblers and get their kids back yeah leaving us in a very different position from the book so Lyra is she's been invited to go to London with Coulter mm. so and, everyone's heading to London yeah so, so it's going to be a bit of a rejig yes. of where they meet uh-huh. yeah which I don't, I don't think is too problematic no. as long as they, they meet up. Lyra tells Mrs. Coulter that she thinks the gobblers have Roger. Yeah. And surprisingly, Mrs. Coulter doesn't like laugh her off and tell her that, you know, gobblers are imaginary. She kind of just says that she's going to help her find yeah. Roger. She sort of low-key confirms that the gobblers exist in a sense. Yeah, because she's she like, sure well, does. if you come with me, I promise. Like, if I say it, it's true, we'll get him back sort of thing. Yeah. And there's a few little moments of just creepiness. It's like the whole children in London can disappear like that. And she does a very crisp click, yeah, which is very satisfying. Yeah. I mean, I will say again, to go back to the book, I think this makes more sense, this part than the book, just putting it out mm. there. Because we criticised in the book that when Lyra finds out Roger's missing, she just sort of goes, ho-hum. I'm going to the North Pole and abandons her friend. Mm. But in this, it's kind of like she's got a real reason to go with Coulter because Coulter's has promised to help yeah. get her friend she back. She agonises a little bit because there's a moment where she goes to get the alethiometer and she's yelling at it, where's Roger? Have the gobblers got him? Because she doesn't know, know how to what, use it. Yeah, yeah. She, well, she doesn't know what to do. And in the end, she goes, well, I suppose if I go to London, like, that's my best chance because she yeah. doesn't know how to help him. Yeah, my best so, chance is Coulter, basically. Yeah. So it, it makes her motivations for going to London a little bit more... Um, a, bit, a bit more clear and convincing, I would yes, say. Yes, definitely. So Lyra joins Mrs Coulter on the airship. The golden monkey definitely eyes up that lethimeter. Yeah, he sees her feel her pocket <laughs> and he has a bit of a huh, frown at it. And yeah. you're just like, well, that monkey... I don't think I'm going to like him (laughs) Um, again. Lyra notices the Egyptians are leaving. Yeah. And I I quite liked this moment where it's, you know, you get a sense of things progressing forward. So she's looking out the window and she sees all the boats, you know. Sailing off towards London. Yeah, and you get a bit of a shot of the the Egyptians looking all serious and all of that. And then the final shot, which is really quite 
you know, something for a kids' TV show. He's like Roger in a cage, like yeah. screaming. Like, let me out. Yeah. And it seems like he's being transported. Yeah. Interesting that that is very evocative of the way the book works sometimes. There are definite moments in the book where everyone's moving, everyone's going somewhere, everything's coming together. And they've kind of ended the episode on a bit of a cliffhanger like that with the Egyptians going to London, Lyra and Coulter going to London. Roger going somewhere, maybe also London from what people are saying. Mm. And it's kind of like we're all, all things in motion, bit of a cliffhanger. Yeah. But you say cliffhanger, really, there are definitely other moments that it could have ended on that would have been more cliffhangery. In the context of the show, what do you mean? What's something like Roger going missing or, well, yeah, you know, something a bit more shocking, whereas actually it kind of ends on a sort of, I guess we're it, going to do something. No. So it as, ends on a bit of a resolution point mm, that leads into the next episode. Yeah, it's maybe not the most dramatic cliffhanger, but I guess it makes sense to end it there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not complaining about it. It's just interesting because there are a lot of sort of dramatic moments and reveals and things that happen in this, but they haven't used it as a hook for the next episode, and that that I am quite surprised about. Yeah, because I wonder how many people who don't have the book investment will be like. Yes, I definitely need to see what happens next. Yeah, I'd really be interested to hear from anyone that's not read the books. A, let us know whether we talk about them too much, but B, like, did you like the show? I mean, it's got a really high review on IMDb and Mm. stuff, like user reviews, but that might be because people that have read the book are kind of on board and invested. I know not everyone that's read the book likes it. What do you think? I mean, impression as a TV show. Do you like oh, it's it? It's so hard to separate myself. I'm trying to imagine like young me or even old me. I would say that it was a slow first episode. Yeah. But I would probably keep wanting to watch because there's a little little bits of stuff that would have caught my interest. Yeah, I think I feel so just watching it as me now. I like it. I think it's got potential. There are elements that I think are a bit weaker. Some things I'm not that keen on. Some differences which maybe I'm kind of just willing to make peace with for the sake of seeing where mm. the show goes. I wouldn't say it blew my mind. Uh, it was a decent introduction to the characters in the world. The way it looks was great. Yeah. I loved that. I don't um, know how a first episode could blow your mind, though. I don't think first episodes... I would say that, like, okay, so I can't imagine what it's like without knowing roughly where the story's going to go. But if I could, like, I hadn't read Game of Thrones when I watched it. Really loved the first episode. I was caught. Actually, yeah, that's a good point. Because there was... I've... But then again, they had the advantage of being able to do more adult stuff. There was lots of cheeky stuff with, like, Tyrion. But there was lots of, like, jeopardy and kind of cliffhangeriness in that because it was straight off the bat we were introduced to the White Walkers and that whole mystery. So mm. you've got a mystery at the beginning that's a cliffhanger and then at the end you get Bran being pushed out of the tower... That's true. another, so you've kind of bookended by... I guess here history. we've got the gobblers and we've got Roger in a cage. It's mm. maybe not as impactful, but then again, it is on more or less in a kid's TV shot, of, yeah. uh, a family TV slot yeah. for Britain. Yeah, I'd be true. interested to know how it goes over in America where it's airing slightly later, maybe less of a traditional family TV slot. I don't know. Yeah. Do you want to move into a brief bit of spoiler alert territory? Oof. For those of you that don't know, normally what happens is we go, spoiler alert, and we just use it as an excuse to freely discuss the future of the series, even though we don't necessarily have any major spoilers to talk about. But I've got a few here. (laughs) So really, if you've not read the books and you're, you're just on board to watch the show, like, trust me, unless you're one of those people that lives for spoilers... 
turn off now. Oh, also, just to clarify, spoilers for book readers, but up until what point? Um, I mean, I'm not really going beyond Northern, Northern Lights, Lights Golden Compass too much, but I just want to lead straight in with Billy Costa gets kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Did they do that? So that if he dies the way Tony Macarios did, it kind of creates more of a direct impact on some of our main characters like the Egyptians. Possibly, yeah. But I feel like it's kind of unnecessary. Yeah, but it's the parsimonious writing thing, isn't it? Like he's a character that exists to die. So why not weave him into the plot Mm. a bit? I suppose I'm never going to get over Tony Macarios. That's that's the truth of it. I'm I'm not thinking logically about this anymore, Chris. Okay, well, here's another question for you. Will it turn out that Grumman, the guy who Asriel's head rocked up with, mm-hmm. uh, Asriel rocks up with his head, will it be like in the books and it turns out that maybe it isn't even him? What made you think of that as a point of... Well, I don't know. It was just one of those things where I was like, because in the books already we're at a point where they're hinting that that might not be who it is, that that might just be a big Asriel ploy. Well, yeah, because it, he does say like that... The, this scholar that looks at it is like, yeah, I think it might yeah. be him. But does that mean they'll go the same way with the various um, indigenous people, like the Skraylings and the Samoyeds? Because there was a lot of like, mm. a, a lot of the reason why it almost mattered or why they discovered it might not be him was because they didn't believe that these people would have done that to him because he was kind of one of their own mm. and stuff. So there's all that sort of whole other groups of people that are involved in the books. Will they be in the show? That is a very good point. Because they've not been mentioned yet. Only Tartars have been mentioned by Mrs Coulter. I think it'd be, it would be poorer for not having bits of that because it, it builds a world. Yeah. Those people help to create that sense of a world. And if I think if they, if they kind of just stick to kind of the, the people that we're seeing now, it's going to feel a little bit... Small. Bl- yeah, mm. and a little... And they've got, potentially, if it does keep running, and I hope it does again, they've got three seasons of, they're already saying that the future seasons will be longer than eight episodes. Like, they've got time to build the world, but maybe it's the Mm. reveal it bit by bit because it'll be nice to have some reveals later on that come straight out of the blue, I guess. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Any more spoilers? Not really, no, not from me. I was going to mention the Astrolabe thing, but I kind of decided that wasn't enough of a spoiler for the plot to <laughs> Fair enough. panic on it. Um, do you think it's weird, like, they've they've real set up, like, Mrs. Coulter as being a baddie, like, off the bat? Yeah, but you don't really know in what way she's a baddie. Like, in the books, she's the one kidnapping the kids, basically. Because you see that through the Golden Monkey, don't you? Yeah. Like, she's directly taking them, whereas in this, it's whoever it is with the fox demon is the actual... So that's, so that's a new thing. Whoever owns the fox demon, that's... New character, potentially. Potentially, yeah. yeah. And Cause I, know... I feel like there's a bit more... It's at least a little bit more amb- ambiguous <laughs> at the beginning um, of the book about whether Mrs. Corey's bad or not. Well, you get that hint of, oh, it's a golden monkey, it's a golden monkey. Why a golden monkey's known for being bad? Well, well, I'm not we... anyone who's got a golden monkey is just trouble. Evil. Yeah, well, because in the, in the book when... Tony Macarius gets kidnapped. You really only get oh, yeah, a, you get a description of the golden monkey and of a, just a beautiful woman. And then when Coulter rocks up with the golden monkey, when she actually meets Lyra oh, later yeah, you're on, like, oh my you're like, God. oh, it must be her. So I feel like I feel like she's more ambiguous in the TV show. If I'm honest, I mean, we know that the Magisterium sort of viewer is a maybe a frenemy. 
from their discussion and we know she's got a villain's music. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I think it is that thing of it's just so hard to know when you're... um when you have that book knowledge, it's just so hard to kind of put yourself in the headspace of people Who watching don't. it for the first time. Yeah. You can't imagine what it seems like and what those motivations are like and stuff. So yeah, let us know how you felt about it, if you've enjoyed it, if you're seething with rage. I do want to know how people felt about the differences from the book. I know we talked about that a lot. I hope that wasn't too boring for people. I feel like we'll be able to talk more about the show in its own right as the show goes on and develops its own version of the world. Mm, yeah, I think we're kind of fighting ourselves a little bit at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, we are a bit. <laughs> we are fighting ourselves a little bit, but I think it's to be expected because the episode is very much just a kind of character and setting development episode, mm. as you'd expect from a first one. So all you can really do is compare those characters to who's in the book. But as the action unfolds, uh, we'll be able to talk about how well it's portrayed and things like that. And I, I feel like we're going to get to see some really cool stuff because, again, the show looks great. I'm yeah. going to complain for a second about how it looks, how it's filmed or anything yeah. like that. It's nice. With all that said, please feel free to write to us via our social medias or email. Leave us a voice message. Still no one's done that. If you can figure out how, it might be harder so than excited. it sounds. So excited. Yeah, it might be harder than it sounds, to be fair. Yeah. Join the discussion on Facebook. Yeah. All our links are in the show notes. Yeah, and... Uh, we love you. And we'll hopefully join you again soon. Next week. Yes, next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, when we'll be doing the TV show again. We love you. Goodbye. Ooh.